Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see you all here. you got a full house. It's not even Easter. <laughs> great to see you on an average day in November. So you can find your place in 1 Corinthians 16, and that's where we'll be this morning. So there once was a city that was sort of a vile place that um, was a haven for idolatry and immorality, and a lot of people lived their lives out apart from God with no knowledge of God and died that way as well, and then their children grew up to repeat the cycle and so on and so forth. But one day, a few men started to come into that town. A few godly men came to that ungodly city. The first one that came, you know, Paul the Apostle. The city I'm talking about is the city of Corinth, of which we've been reading these now some weeks and months in 1 Corinthians. Paul came to this ungodly city. He met and partnered up with a couple who knew the Lord named Aquila and Priscilla. And Paul began to minister, again, in this haven of idolatry and immorality. He began to reach out to people. Now, there was a man named Stephanus who, uh, we're not sure, apparently he lived in that city. And he and his household believed the gospel. And they were actually the first converts to Christianity there in that province, as we're going to see in our passage in a little bit. And, and then Silas and Timothy came to town. Paul had left them behind in another place, and they joined him in Corinth. And now there was a team of godly individuals reaching out to people in the communities of Corinth, reaching people in different walks of life, reaching Jews who were in Judaism and knew the law but did not know the Messiah, did not know Christ. And they also reached a bunch of Gentiles who had coming out of the thralls of paganism and so forth. So, so in Corinth, which again was, had a reputation of just vileness and so forth, a church was started. All because a few godly men simply stood up and said, here's the truth of Jesus Christ. And they said it with love, and they reached out in love, and it changed people's lives. Souls were saved, lives were changed, and a church was planted in one of the worst cities on the planet. That is what God can do when he has people that are simply faithful to him and willing to live out his calling in their life. In our passage today, we're, we're reading in verses 13 through 18 specifically, and I want to bring light to, really, a few godly men and, and what godly manhood is about, as it comes out in this passage very strongly. It's emphasized here. We're going to see in our passage to, today that Paul is primarily addressing men. He was speaking to the men of the church to step up and lead godly lives in Christ. We're going to see that especially emphasized in verses 13 and 14. 
because there's great results when men do this. Now listen, the ladies can take away principles as well. There's things here you can, you can apply. We'll get, you'll see that as we go through it. But just know that we're primarily speaking to men because this is how God has ordained things to work in the home, in the church, and so forth. And it's what happened in Corinth, as we're going to kind of see, is there were a few godly men, but they weren't necessarily listened to. And there was a bunch of people going off in other directions and, and fracturing the church. There was a lot of men who were not godly and who were taking the church with them down a whole bunch of perverse and foolish pathways. So when we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13, Paul now is closing out his epistle. He is speaking some few words, and he gives a series of exhortations and instructions here, and they're kind of coming rapid fire as he's getting, you know, kind of his last words. He's been dealing with these questions of, of the Christian life and, and all the problems they had. And I, I see, and I see here in our passage that as you get into verse 13, one of the big problems was that men of God were not stepping up and saying, this is what God says we're about. This is what we need to do. And let's, so we're going to go this way. Okay? And I think, again, the implication here is that if that had been going on, if godly men would have stood up sooner, we may never have needed this epistle to be written in the first place because it, it, a lot of these problems would have been solved just with some, a few godly men stepping up and saying, no, this isn't right. Let's look at this passage. We're just going to, again, go through verse 18 from 13 to 18, and we're just going to break it into two halves, pursuing godly manhood and living out godly manhood. And verses 13 and 14, let's read those again together. Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong, let all that you do be done with love. These five rapid-fire imperatives that Paul gives in these two verses. He gives you five things to take away in those two verses. These words, watch, stand, uh, be brave, be strong, and then do everything with love, basically. And we're going to walk through these five things under our first main point, as Paul, again, is really calling men to, to step into this role that God has called you and trust him in this role, as we'll see. So first the word, watch. He says, watch. Here we'll expand it a little bit out of what's based in the, the word. that The idea we're seeing here is to keep a diligent and discerning watch. Keep a diligent and discerning watch. That's the idea behind the Greek word for watch there, is this idea of a vigilant walk. A diligent, excuse me, watch. A diligent watch. And I think... It's the idea of looking out for all the different things that could arise to cause someone to stumble into faith. I think what Paul's really talking about here is as he's been dealing with the Corinthians and all of the issues they've had, it's, it, fundamentally they're spiritual issues. They believe lies in different areas of their life and walk with the Lord. They're listening to people that don't have their best interest at heart. And they were not very discerning in all of this. And Paul is kind of saying, hey, you need to wake up to what's happening around you and what people are saying and what people are doing so you can recognize the spiritual warfare that's taking place in the lives of, of people all around you. You know, they, they really, again, they struggled with so many things. They had fallen into all kinds of traps 
that the enemy had laid out for them in Corinth. I mean, it, it just feels like you're reading a laundry list of, of, of sin when you, when you list all the things the Corinthians struggled with. You know, they had the immorality. They had the divisions. They, they, they had the Lord's communion, the Lord's Supper, as some kind of a drunken brawl, for goodness gracious. I've not even seen that in our world, in our time. I mean, it's like, I guess we're not worst at everything. I mean, the Corinthians maybe still hold the trophy on that one. But anyway... Just all these traps they'd fall into. And because they, they, they weren't really paying attention to where does all this stuff take you? Where does it take the church? When you just kind of sit back and let it happen. And you start spiraling down the drain. And that's what was going on in Corinth. And so he's been correcting. And then he says, watch so it doesn't happen again. Keep your eyes open. Pay attention. And be discerning. You know, and, and to, it's easy to say be discerning. It's another thing to actually be discerning. You have to grow. It really plays into the other things we'll talk about. You have to grow in the Lord. So, and you have to grow in his words so you can begin to recognize when certain things are said or certain behaviors are exhibited. You can understand where does this take somebody? Where does it go? You know, where does this go? I think this is an area especially where younger can learn from the older because the older have been around the older men the older women they've been they've been around they've been through things they've seen things um older men in the church probably may well recognize where certain teachings direct people and direct hearts and where it takes you logically in your faith they've probably seen where certain behaviors go if you don't stand up and call something out in the church that's like sinful and really destructive and you just let it go, where does it take everybody else? It spirals out of control. That's what had happened in Corinth. Things were spiraling out of control because people weren't standing up and saying, this is wrong, this is only going to destroy our church, destroy our testimony, and before long it's all going to be ashes here in Corinth. This church that's been planted is going to fall apart. You know, I think back, when I, when I came to Berean Bible Institute at age 20, I guess it was, I mean, I knew some things biblically. I knew the Word of God pretty well. But you're just young. You hadn't seen much. You haven't been through much. And, you know, sitting under the tutelage and instruction of other of good godly men in the Institute, and, and to be honest, I'm, I think especially of Dr. Ed Bedore and Pastor Walgast, uh, as they were the primary teachers at the time that we were students there. And I, I think, you know, for Dr. Bador, one of the things I remember uh, about him is, I mean, he was very passionate for the truth. And, I mean, if you questioned something or seemed to be going astray, he would let you know. <laughs> he would let you know. And, but, but I understand part of it was because he knew where it would go. He had seen it. He'd been in different countries, worked with youth, worked with old people, worked with, and he, he knew where stuff would go. And I, I can think of a few students kind of like, kind of joking. It's like, man, he thinks everything leads to universal reconciliation, it seems like, you know, because he was so passionate against that teaching, which is the teaching in which somebody thinks that in the end, everybody just ends up in heaven, period, that there is no such thing as an everlasting place of damnation and fire called hell or the lake of fire, that that's, that that's just a temporary thing and everybody ends up in heaven. There's a whole different bunch of spins on that and everything. But 
I remember certain things would come up in classes or in different people's lives, and he would say, be careful with that, because that's, that tends to lead here. And so just be on guard. Be, basically, what he was basically saying is, watch. Watch. Watch where your, where your belief is taking you. Watch what you believe is taking you. Watch what you're doing. Watch where it takes you. And so there's that idea of keeping a diligent and discerning watch again. Again, it's something the Corinthians had failed in and it had caused so much problems and, and all the issues we read about stem out of simply kind of falling asleep at the job kind of a thing and just letting it happen and being like, it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. Everybody can kind of do what they want. It's like, that's great until everybody's lives are ruined because of it. <laughs> Things have consequences. What we believe leads to a lifestyle, actions, and everything has consequences. And Paul is simply saying, watch, I think. I think he had a lot of these things in mind. All the different influences coming into the church. Watch out and understand where does this all lead. He next says, stand fast in the faith. So it's the, the, the imperative here, the instruction here is to stand. To stand fast in the faith as he qualifies. It means to be firmly planted in your faith. It, it may speak to circumstances. It may speak to circumstantial things in your life, not being tossed to and fro in your faith every time something happens in your life. Something bad happens and now I'm over here. Something good happens and now I'm back as a good Christian. And I, He may be speaking to the circumstantial side of that, but he also may be speaking to the the, the theological side of that, again, what are, you, what are you standing for? What are you believing in? What do you understand about Jesus Christ? <clears throat> so it's, again, we want to, we, he's saying, be firmly planted. Don't be back and forth all the time. You know, and, and I think, truth be told, we can all fall into that kind of a mentality where, like, we do pretty good when everything's good, but maybe we don't do so good when everything's not so good in, in our walk with the Lord. Does our faith take us through all the circumstances and things of life that, that come our way as God allows into our life? I mean, the word there for stand, it's where we, you know, it's, it, it's in the Greek, it, what comes out of that Greek word is like the idea of, the, of a stake, to be staked, to be firmly staked, you know, drive a, drive a stake there and, and stay there and to, and to stay where you're at. And again, I think he's looking at the Corinthians. He had went to Corinth. And he worked with these other people we mentioned earlier, like Aquila, Priscilla, Stephanus, Silas, Timothy, different people that are named in the New Testament, all had a hand in what's happening, what God was doing in that city. And they planted the church, and the church started really good, and those people kind of moved on to different areas, and some other people were there. And, and now, years later, we get this letter because things are coming off the tracks. The train, it's like a train wreck. Because they had moved away from the faith. They had moved away from what they had been established in. Just trust the Lord. Walk with him. They were getting caught up into worldly wisdom. If you remember, we, read, we talked about that earlier in the book. What is the world doing? Let's get our method from the world. What does the world think about this? What, is the, what do all the great philosophers say? What is, what is this about? What is that about? And pretty soon you, you're, you're just mingling worldly things with, with scripture and getting all kinds of strange ideas. And then you act out those ideas, those that, where whatever your faith is in now. 
Your faith is getting off of the word, getting into the world, and then what's going to follow? Your life is going to follow down that path. And then you read about all the problems again. That's one of the things that they were struggling with. They were adopting worldly viewpoints and practices instead of standing fast in the faith that Paul had laid out for them. Standing strong with the Lord instead of letting everything come in and and knock them off of that. I think, you know, it's it's November 6th now, uh, last weekend... Uh, obviously, October 31st came and went. You know, again, people, most people, you say October 31st, we think of, well, that's Halloween, that's the, that day. But actually, October 31st is another anniversary, and some of you will probably know this, but that was the day back in the year 1517 that a guy named Martin Luther uh, reportedly nailed a sheet of paper on a, especially a church door in Wittenberg, Germany, called the 95 Theses, Okay, and, and some even think he maybe nailed it on other church doors, but, you know, that's something for the historians, I guess, to figure out 100%. But anyway, he nailed this thing on, on the church door in 1517 and, and was just calling out all the things that the, that the established church, how they had moved away from the word of God. Basically, it was him pointing out, saying, like, we're not standing fast in the faith on these points. We're way over here and all this other stuff that had been brought in by the traditions of men and the wisdom of the world. And so the church at the time was, was teaching all kinds of things, and it was basically a works-based salvation. And Martin Luther said, you know what? I'm going to stand up and I'm going to say what I think's right before the Lord, and he did that. And he was called to the mat on it. He had to defend his faith. He had to defend and debate other people who were attacking what he was saying. But he was simply trying to major on the word of God and that salvation was by grace through faith in Christ alone. Does that sound like a pretty good thing to stand on? (laughs) As part of the fundamental fabric of this church, you know, in any good church. Because it's it's the word of God that shows us that salvation is by grace through faith. And out of that, Martin Luther standing up, just, just, just one godly man stood up, but he had some help too. And others joined the cause, so before long there was a few godly men who were standing up for faith and truth and liberty back in the 16th century, and it sparked a whole movement that changed the history of the church forever. It was the Reformation, and it was, there was the five solas that, went out, that came out of the Reformation. And sola just means alone. Sola scriptura, scripture alone. Sola fide, faith alone. Sola gratia, grace alone. Sola Christo, Christ alone. And soli deo gloria, for the glory of God alone. So the scriptures alone, and then we see it's by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, to God's glory alone. That sounds pretty good to me. I'll sign up for that. I can get behind that. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what, that's what the message of grace is about. And they were all about getting people to read their Bibles and get it translated. And you know, as these, these, good, these few godly men of that time were doing those things, and you could go forward a little bit, there was a guy named William Tyndale. Are you familiar with his name? And he, he had a passion for people to be able to read the Bible in the English language, and so he began a translation work, and the established church was trying to shut it down and persecute him. He did it in secret. 
he like translated the Bible in secret, and then he became a Bible smuggler in that time. That's what he was getting across the border <laughs> in his time. Bible. <laughs> the Bible. And eventually he was betrayed by a so-called friend, and they got a hold of him, and you know what happened to him? He was burned at the stake, alive, for translating the Bible into English, because that's not what the church wanted at the time. You see, a few godly men can do a lot when the Lord's working in and through their lives. And you know, we sit here today and we think back a few generations, but you can think back centuries. There's a whole trajectory of how we got here today, why this church is even here in this community today. It all, it all would connect back to those things too. It connects back to a, the whole idea that we're going to go to the Word of God and we're going to stand here and we're going to serve Jesus Christ and it's for the glory of God. It's not for the glory of clergy or something like that. No, it's for him alone. And that's the kind of foundation that Paul laid in Corinth and the foundation they were getting away from. And he's calling them back. Good and godly men, stand up and stand in the faith. And don't let the world throw you with everything the world says. And don't let every circumstance make you question if God's working in your life. He is. And so stand fast like the men who have come before us. Next, Paul says, it's translated, at least in the New King James, as uh, be brave, right? Now, if you've got the King James Bible here, this is where it says, you know, quit ye like men, which is one of the, to me, one of the funniest translations in, in all, of the, all of the Bible. When you, when you look at what's behind it in the Greek, it's one singular word. The, the Greek word, I'll just tell you, it's a verb form of the, uh, of the word that just means man, so it's like you could call somebody a man, but if you went up to him, you'd say, you need to, you need to man. You need to man, like as a verb. It's kind of like the idea of man up. Be a man. And, and the King James translators did the quit ye like men. Now, that's been lost in language over the centuries. So we hear quit ye like a man. It almost sounds like quit being a man, you know, doesn't it? Or, like, or quit like a man. Like when you quit your job, you do it like a man. You go in there and you let them know why you're quitting and you tell them off. No, it just weird ideas come out of that. In, in, in the New King James, it says, be brave, and maybe some of your other English Bibles say that, and that's, that's, that's a fair translation, but, but, it, but it is man. It's, it's man up. It's step up and be a man. And I've, I've rendered it here on the outline as, be a mature and courageous man in the Lord, because those, those ideas do seem implicit in the word. It's like, grow up. Be like a grown man, and stand up for what's right, and stand up for what's good. And this is something that Paul had been dealing with in this epistle with them. Um, they had been very immature. And a lot of the men in the church had been very immature in their faith and their life before the Lord. <clears throat> and so he's calling that out and he's saying, no, you need to be mature. Mature in the Lord and courageous in the Lord. Mature and courageous men of the Lord. On, on the Greek word behind it, Spiros Adahades, he gives this definition. To behave oneself with the wisdom and courage of man, as opposed to a babe or child in Christ. Or to behave courageously. Now Paul, earlier in this epistle, back in 1 Corinthians 3.1, he had told the Corinthians they were acting like babes in Christ. We'll pull up on the screen 1 Corinthians 3.1-4. through 4. And he writes, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. 
I fed you with milk, not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you are still not able, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? So notice there, you're, you're acting like babes in Christ, you know. And if somebody comes up and calls me a baby, I'm going to probably take a little bit of offense to that. But, but, he's, but he's just simply saying, you're acting carnal, worldly is what he means there, fleshly, instead of spiritual, instead of godly. And he, I like how he says, you behave in how they render it, mere men. We're, we're saying later, be a man, but not this kind, <laughs> not this kind of man. He's talking about worldly manhood here. And worldly manhood, for all that it might vaunt itself to be before the Lord, is basically like a little baby. You know, that's, that's, that's where you're at spiritually before the Lord, but he's calling them to a mature and godly manhood in which Christ is control in your life and center of your world, and everything flows out of that, and you're devoted to him and surrendered to him. Paul also had challenged them to be mature in 1 Corinthians 13, 11, when he said this to them, when I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. And that's in the context, that chapter, of love. So earlier in the book, he says, you're like a baby as far as spiritual things. You're not getting it. You're not getting what Christ is all about. And then when it came to living out love in their life, again, he's like, you're immature. You're like childish in this. You know, you imagine yourself to be this upstanding, mature Christian witness for the Lord, and he says, that's not how it is. Because you're not putting God first in all these areas of your life. And so he calls them, you need to grow up in Christ and understand what is it Christ is doing? What does he want to do in and through your life? And are you yielded to him and to the spirit working in you and to living this out? So it's kind of a call to, to grow up in a sense, but again, to, 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 to be the man God calls you to be. And, and that's where we, where we mainly derive this passage is speaking to the men, because I don't think he's telling the women to man up. <laughs> I don't think he's really addressing that. No, he's saying, man up men and, and lead your families in spirituality so you can help lead the church in spirituality and move God's purposes forward. Because if the men are immature, like the mere men we, we read about earlier, the spiritually immature, if that's where they're at, then the church will be weaker, your homes will be weaker, all the for it. Next he says, be strong, as it's rendered here. Be strong. Basically the idea is to continue to grow stronger and I add, in the Lord, obviously, is his meaning. He's not telling you to pick yourself up by your bootstraps and, and, and be the power in your own life, because you can't do that. That's antithetical to Christianity. Christianity is a life so high and God-glorifying that you can't do it. It's beyond you. It's so far beyond you, it's not even funny. And the only way you can live out the Christian life is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the only way this works. And so when he says to be strong, it must be in the context of the Lord strengthening you day by day. So there's the idea of, of growing stronger in the Lord. 
Don't be settled for where you're at in your Christian life. Keep moving forward with the Lord, knowing that he has more to teach you, more to grow you, more in your walk with him. Keep growing in the Lord. But again, it's his power and strength. I'll share with you Ephesians 3.16. It's the same Greek word that's translated here as like be strong, another form of it is in Ephesians 3.16, and Paul writes here that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened, there's the word, strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. See, this is where Christian strength comes from. It's not from you, and that's not what he's telling the Corinthians. They were already doing everything in their strength, and it was ugly. That's where they were already at. This is the strength that only the Lord can provide you through the indwelling Holy Spirit. This is what makes a Christian life possible. And not just some unattainable theory. He lives in and through us as we yield to him and walk by faith. His spirit brings strength. So you can stand up and say, that's not right. That's wrong. So you can watch. You can stand firm in the faith. You can quit like a man. (laughs) You can be a godly man when the Lord is strengthening you. And I think this is an area, too, where, like, again, this idea of increasing growth. Again, this is where, you know, this is one of the areas that, that we could say there's more here, but this is where we need godly influence in our life to help us to see a picture of what does godly manhood or godly womanhood look like. And we avail ourselves from other members of the body of Christ. And iron sharpens iron. And we learn from each other. And we come in under the influence of other godly people. It's going to grow your faith and your strength in the Lord. Because it teaches you. This is where good books, we have books on the book table. We've been trying to revamp the book table lately. But a lot of those books back there, they're back there because we think they're some of the best resources that's going to help you grow in certain areas of the Christian life. And there's lots of good stuff back there. And it's because we all need encouragement. We all need vision put before us of where do we want to go in this area of life or that area of life. And, and we're never going to exhaust it in this life. But God's going to continue to move us forward. And we can avail ourselves of all the things he's provided through us today, uh, even through the body, good resources, good books, just fellowship together, working alongside each other like we're going to do this coming Saturday. All of these things I see God uses to encourage our hearts to continue to trust in him and to know him in a deeper way. So we, we need the influence of other godly people in our lives. It's going to help us to grow strong in the Lord. In verse 14, he says, Let all that you do be done with love. That's the easy one, right? Or is it the hard one? <laughs> Let love characterize all that you do. Love. All that you do with love. Love. There's probably a lot of things we would not do if we really had that verse in our heart seared in there and we always obeyed it. There'd be a lot of things we, we wouldn't have done because <laughs> there wasn't love mingled in to the equation when we did it. We all have moments of the flesh and struggles of unbelief and things, and, and it doesn't come out loving. Things don't come out loving. And the problem is you could do verse 13 without verse 14 to some degree. At least people think they can. You could think you're being a, a watchword of the faith. You're standing firm in the faith. You're, you're manly and you are strong in the Lord, and you let everybody know about it, 
and you beat them over the head with what you think is always right and what the Word of God teaches or whatever. You could be a spiritual bully. They exist, if you didn't know. And there's no love in that. There's no love. And Paul didn't want to trade a bunch of worldly Christians for a bunch of spiritual bullies. He didn't want to go from one extreme to the next. Love keeps you balanced. Love keeps you engaged with other people. When everything is done in love, then it can bring out, in a way, truth that can be received by others. Ephesians, it's in Ephesians 4 where he talks about speaking the truth in love. But let love characterize all that you do, is what he's saying here. This takes us back to chapter 13 of this epistle, where he spent a whole chapter talking about how love is like the supreme virtue of the Christian life. And if you're loving, he tells you what it looks like and what it doesn't look like back there. We'll read a few verses here together. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8, at least the first part of 8. It says, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails or never ceases. And just a little bit later in verse 13, 1 Corinthians 13, 13, he wrote this, And now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Thus, let all that, you be, all that you do be done with love. Because if it's not, then, it wasn't, then God didn't ask you to do it. <laughs> it wasn't what he asked you to do it. And that's sometimes where we fail. We'll do what we think God wants us to do, but we forget love in it. And then it just comes out like a hammer or whatever. Well, I did it. I checked it off. I did what I was supposed to do. Everybody, you know, it, well, I'll just leave it at that. We can... We can fail in that and really, really create rifts with people. And this is what brings the balance. Truth with love, always meant to be in harmony. And obviously in everything we're talking about here, there is no greater example than the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived it out every day, who would warn and console and comfort and love and teach and not back down from spiritual bullies, or not be afraid to say when something was ungodly and hurtful to others, and yet you couldn't find a more loving individual. He's the greatest example of all those things. What this epistle taught us back in 1 Corinthians 13, which we read a moment ago, is that without love, we're nothing, and we accomplish nothing. Love puts others first. Love sacrifices time, wants, money for the sake of others. Love is the characteristic of a godly man or a godly individual in general. Now, last time, I think I quoted a VeggieTales song. And to make sure I'm covering all the demographics, today I'm going to quote a Gaither song. Uh, I'll leave Johnny Cash for Pastor Becker. That's his speciality. But the Gaithers even sing a song called A Few Good Men. I'm going to read the lyrics to you. It says, What this dying world could use is a willing man of God who dares to go against the grain and works without applause. A man who'll raise the shield of faith, protecting what is pure, whose love is tough and gentle, 
a man whose word is sure. God doesn't need an order who knows just what to say. He doesn't need authorities to reason him away. He doesn't need an army to guarantee a win. He just needs a few good men. Men full of compassion who laugh and love and cry. Men who'll face eternity and aren't afraid to die. Men who'll fight for freedom and honor once again. He just needs a few good men. He calls the broken derelict whose life has been renewed. He calls the one who has the strength to stand up for the truth. Enlistment lines are open, and he wants you to come in. He just needs a few good men. Men full of compassion, who laugh and love and cry. Men who'll face eternity and aren't afraid to die. Men who'll fight for freedom and honor once again. He just needs a few good men. So powerful lyrics, and I think very true. And I would probably still say a few godly men, because I think when you say godly, then it means good with the Lord, good for the Lord, not just good apart from the Lord. But godliness is, is when I'm in tune and I acknowledge God in my life and I'm living and living for him. So in verses 13 and 14, Paul gives us this like concise summary of, in one sense of the Christian life, but he's directing it toward men, calling them to take up this role that God's put on them to lead the way, lead the way in godliness. And this is how it looks when you do that. These are the attributes of a godly Christian. Now, as we come to verses 15 through 18, and I'll deal with them somewhat briefly, as we have about 10 minutes here, but it's an example. We see a picture of the very things he's talking about with the next few men he writes about. He gives us these attributes, these callings in verses 13 and 14. Now, this kind of serves as a picture of what it can look like in men's lives. And so the idea is to live out godly manhood and look at this illustration of the men we'll read about. Let's read 15 through 18 here. He says, I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that it is the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that you also submit to such and to everyone who works and labors with us. I am glad about the coming of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. Let me try that again. Achaicus. For what was lacking on your part, they supplied. For they refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge such men. He calls out some godly men that had helped him from the church in Corinth. And, it, and he's already, well, we've talked about that a little bit earlier in our introduction about Stephanus. We named him. And here is where he's named for the second time in this letter. And we're going to notice right away that one of the things that stands out about Stephanus's household this family unit. Now, just understand that a household back then could have been wife, children, and even servants in that culture and that time in the Roman Empire and these different provinces. And Achaia is mentioned here, and Achaia was the Roman province in which Corinth was, like I think, the largest city there, maybe, maybe next to Athens. Uh, maybe Athens was biggest, but it, they were, it was one of the primary cities of that Roman province. And it's what we would know as modern-day Greece, at least part of modern-day Greece, okay? So that's the area in which all this is being directed. But he says, this household of Stephanus, all these members of his household, he says, they're the first fruit of Achaia. 
And what he means, what we're pretty sure that he means with the idea of first fruit was, this were the first people I led to the Lord in this province. When I got into this province, they're the first ones that trusted Christ. Now, we could get into some Bible study and trying to figure out how it all fits together with the book of Acts because you don't even hear about this family in the book of Acts. And he actually goes to Athens before he goes to Corinth. And Athens is in the province. So did Stephanus and his family, were they in Athens when Paul came, but they lived in Corinth? It's, anyway, jot that down. You know, that can be something you, 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 know, you can riddle out this week. But anyway, but he says, you're the first fruit. They're the first people that came to Christ in this province. That's, that's quite an acknowledgement, right? This family who's part of your church, they're the first ones in this whole like, state that came to know the Lord. He, and he calls them out here. And yet, what are they doing? They're devoted to the ministry of the saints. And as we go through this, we'll pull out just three points here. And the first one is, be a family devoted to serving. I mean, as under the umbrella of, we're being called to, for a few godly men. We're being called, the men, again, we're speaking primarily to, be a, be a family devoted to serving, to ministering. And I'm not saying it means you have to like fill every role in the church or anything like that, but it talks about the priority of your life. And what do we do as a family? This is family identity stuff here. What did the household of Stephanus do? They chose amongst their peers and their culture and their city and their place, they chose to live for Jesus Christ first and foremost. And as they lived for Jesus Christ, they had a heart for other people. And they acted on that, the desire to simply bless others. And here, the idea of devoted, it means to, well, it, it, it goes back to the, this Greek word tasso, and it means to arrange, arrange themselves or ordain yourself. And it just simply means that they set their priorities over here. Instead of setting all their priorities and everything in the world and everything that's going on in the world and everything I'm going to do here, they set their priorities in the Lord and what is God doing. And what does the body of Christ need? And what, does, what do my brothers and sisters in Christ them and help encourage their hearts? And not just be caught up in everything else, right? In the great swirl of life that can devour any of us. No, he, he's talking about I, I, uh, what I apparently believe is the man of the house, Stephanus, whether he was an old man and he had younger, uh, you know, adult children or wherever he was a middle-aged man with kids, I don't know what the age was and everything. And, and who these other people are, are mentioned, we'll talk about in just a second. But whatever the case of his household, whatever that looked like, he as the leader, he as in the category of a few godly men, he said, no, my family's going to be about Jesus Christ and blessing the saints and reaching out to others. That's what we're going to live for. That's what we're going to be about. That's what's going to dictate you know, where we put all our time, money, and energy. We're going to devote to serving others and help others. And your King James obviously renders that addicted to ministry, right? Addicted. I'm not sure that's a great word. Addiction has only negative connotation in our culture. Addiction is when you can't help yourself and you can't get out of a, of a, you know, a problem issue, drugs or whatever. We think of addiction that way. But no, the, I think the word devoted captures the meaning better of being directed toward. This is what we're about. This is what we're about. Our family is here for Jesus Christ. This is what the household of Stephanus does. This is what we're about. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And not everything else that everybody else was chasing in the city of Corinth in that time. We're going to stand on the Lord. And this is where we're going to live our life from. 
And I think in that is the, the implication. That's what the Lord has for men who lead our families. We're here for Jesus Christ. We're here for serving others. And that's where we're, how we're going to direct our time, energy, and resources to that end. To be about what Jesus Christ is about. So he talks about the household of Stephanus. And he says, he calls them, he calls out what they're doing, that they're noted among the Corinthians. Corinthians knew this guy. He, he apparently was part of their church and everything. And he says, verse 16, that you also submit to such and to everyone who works and labors with us. Here he uses that word submit. Nobody likes that word. We talk about it usually in marriage, exact same Greek word, hupatasso. Hupatasso, to come under, to arrange yourself under, to be subject, to be submissive to. That's the idea. And um, we just read the household of Stephanus. They, they did the Greek word tasso. They arranged themselves under the Lord. They directed themselves toward the Lord. And Paul's saying, that's godly leadership. Get behind that. Follow that lead. You, if he's tasso this way, you hupatasso. And you, you, connect, and you follow that same example and that same pattern. And I think what he's doing here is pointing out to the Corinthians that you do have a few godly men, and they should be the ones that's leading you spiritually. Not all this other stuff going on. Guys over here questioning bodily resurrection. Guys over here saying it's okay for gross forms of sexual morality to happen in your church. You got somebody over here. Who was leading communion, by the way? <laughs> who was leading that, right? The Lord's Supper. Who was, who was directing that or coordinating that? They obviously had so-called leaders without godliness. But Stephanus sets it apart as, no, this is a godly example. This is a man about the Lord. This is the kind of people that God calls to leadership in the local church, people who are following the Lord. And the idea here is simply, on the outline, submit to godly leadership. But I think another way to say it is follow the lead of godly men. Follow the lead because, I mean, we all, we all do this. We all do submission in our lives. We submit all the time to our, our government and so forth, the speed limit, whatever you want to say. We, we, we do this at work. When the boss says, this is what we're going for, you jump behind and say, let's do it. At least that's what you should be doing. But we, we want to be behind what the vision is. Where, where are we going? And we get behind that and we say, I'm going to help it. And in those pictures, it's not that these, these things in our life are commanding us and ordering us every which way. It's, instead, this, the emphasis is a willing, voluntary, I'm going to follow the lead here because this is good and this is a direction we should be going. And so he calls out, and I think it's ironic here because earlier in this very epistle, one of the big problems they had was following men. Some of them, they, they were divided into at least four big factions. Some said, I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas. That's another name for Peter. Or I am of Christ. And he's like, is Christ divided? Did Paul die for you? you know, he's like, what are you guys talking about? It's not me, it's Jesus Christ. See, that's, that's when you become a man follower. See, that's, that's unhealthy. That's not godly. That's not spiritual. That's not what this is talking about. This isn't man following. This is instead, as a local body, he says, you do have godly men, though, that can help you, that can teach you, that can help you move forward together. And I believe he's basically saying, Stephanus here, I mean, this is just kind of how I view the passage in the context of it, that, you know, he's looking at Stephanus as a, as a leader in that church, perhaps like an elder figure. And he's like, you guys ought to be listening 
to what he's doing because he is godly. He was about the, serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he, he's an exemplary picture of, of godly leadership. And Paul says, you ought to, what does he say? You know, uh, submit to such and to everyone who works and labors with us. I do this. Every, every day I go to BBI, I submit. Because I'm not, I'm not driving the ship necessarily. I mean, maybe not the best way to put it. But I'm not, I'm not the president. And we have a president. And he sets the vision. And he's saying, hey, I think we need to do this. And we say stuff too. We say, I think we ought to do this. And he'd be like, I like that. Let's do that. Or he may say, I don't like that. I don't want to do that. I say, that's fine. That's okay. You know, we're, it's not about persona or anything like that. It's really not about authority or anything like that. It's just about how do we work together? And is someone godly leading the way? Is someone godly leading the way? That's what Paul tried to establish in every church. And he called them, and when you see that, follow that kind of a teaching. Follow that. Where does that go? You want to go where that's going. Wherever, if somebody's godly in, in leading a church, that's, where, that's the direction you want to be going. And so there, that's another example of a few godly men being able to be leaders in a local church like Stephanus. And just quick here, he says in verse 17 that Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, these three guys had come and helped him. Now, again, Paul's in Ephesus when he writes this. Three men traveled, took a long time, took a lot of money. They traveled to where Paul was in Ephesus, and they, they blessed him. They came alongside. They co-ministered with him there. They helped him there. And this is another example of their, their godliness. Is again, they were willing to help, bless. Paul says they refreshed him in verse 18. So they're there to bless. They came to simply give, to serve. That's leadership. That's leadership. That's Jesus Christ right there. That's a picture of him again. And these three guys came. They helped out the apostle. And uh, again, they stand out as this exemplary picture of what godly manhood can look like. And he says, acknowledge such men. You know, not acknowledge that. You know, it's kind of like the idea of honor that. Honor godliness. When you see an example of godliness, honor that. Call that out and say, I love what you're doing there. I appreciate that. I see that you're about the Lord Jesus Christ, and I see it in your life. And I think there's a spirit of acknowledging that and, and encouraging that and saying, that's good. That's good there. You know, some people, some men, never hear, hear any words of encouragement. Acknowledge such, he says. When you see a godly example, when you see somebody that's in this area Paul's talking about here, acknowledge it. And I've, and I've shared before some of my testimony, but again, I wouldn't be here if, if, if I hadn't experienced something similar in the sense of I had a few godly men pour into me at different parts of my life. And by the way, that was our last point, pour into others. That's what these three men were doing. They poured into others. That's an example of a godly man. He gives himself for others. He sacrifices for others. He's about encouraging others as he lives for the Lord. I had men pour into me. My pastor in Indiana came alongside, taught me some of the most elementary and basic parts of what it meant to be a Christian, to be a believer in Christ, and he helped me along. 
And he actually nurtured and encouraged in what I, when I said I felt a call to ministry. And then I came to BBI, and I had other godly men pour into me. Pastor Wagast, one of the prime examples, one of the prime suspects over here. If you don't like what I'm saying, blame him. <laughs> he, he poured into me, and, and, and like Pastor Lynn and Pastor Becker too, and other guys that were younger when we came to the Institute, poured in, taught us, came alongside us, shared life experience, shared life story, shared the truth lived out. Guys like Dr. Ed Bidor, who I mentioned earlier. I remember doing a project at the school with him one day, and like we were, we were stripping a floor so they could glue carpet down in what was the new building at the time, and just working alongside and living some life alongside. You got education, you got teaching, but, but we also had personal interaction. And there was others I could name. But, and, I've, and, even, and even since then, I've had several encouraging brothers in my life that would pour into my life refresh me, bless and encourage me. That's what godly men do. By the way, that's what happens every year at the Men Encouraging Men log camp. That's what it's all about. Verse 13 is the main verse where we all put our feet back and quit like men. No, I'm just kidding. No, but we, we come there to encourage each other because we know we all need it. And just hearing people share, there's always adversity there's always things to hold you down in the Christian life. We need people to come alongside and encourage each other and be there. And, and, it, and it's not a lot. Again, this message is called a few godly men. Because God didn't send an army to Corinth. He sent a few godly men. And when Paul needed help in Ephesus, Corinth didn't send an army. They sent, apparently, three godly men. Just a few godly men. If a few godly men just say, I'm here for the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what my life's about then God is going to use that to tremendous results as is what we see in the very fact that there was a church in Corinth because a few godly men stood up for truth and walked with the Lord. With that, let's pray. Father, thanks for your word and how it speaks to our heart, always relevant, even in a time and a place we live in a culture and in a time where there's certainly lots of things we don't like worldliness and carnality and everything like that and it and it um we struggle with that as christians lord we want to live spiritual we want to live holy before you we want to walk with you and trust in you and yet the world can throw so much at us and life circumstances can throw so much at us lord but we just want to continue to trust you and as paul said here to for the men here to be men of god to be those few godly men that you can use really to change lives and change what's happening around us, Lord, just by a godly example. Father, we do lift up the upcoming election again, as was mentioned earlier, and everything that may be swirling around that. But Lord, most of all, I would pray that each of our hearts here would just rest assured that you indeed are God, that you indeed are the one who works all things to good, and that that would so fill our hearts and bring rest to our hearts that we go out thrilled about who you are today. No matter what happens Tuesday, no matter what happens in a month or two months or three months, that we're thrilled about who you are and we continue to stand in the faith of you and be strong in you. We just give you thanks and pray this in Christ's name. Amen.